Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Got someone really exciting for you today. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, for once, your mum is more excited than either of us, just because she is such a massive fan of the topic that we're going to be doing. Uh, we have Catherine Fellows with us today, who says she leads a double life, but we're only interested in one part. <laughs> and she specialises in Renaissance papal history, but she also specialises in the Borgias, which everyone likes talking about because they're absolutely freaking bonkers. Um, and the subject of loads and loads of cult- pop culture, media stuff. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me. We can't wait for this. We're anticipating loads of sex, <laughs> violence and rock and roll. You won't be disappointed then. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> First of all, before we get there, tell us about your research project. It sounds fascinating. Um, so this was, is without, unfortunately, all the sex and violence. It was, um, so my doctoral project looked at Rodrigo Borgia, so later Pope Alexander VI as papal vice chancellor so what that role is is basically the pope's number two man um he is the sort of brains behind the operation if that makes sense so he looks after the papal chancery which controls the output of all sort of papal communications papal balls papal letters so he really is at the heart of papal government uh so i looked at that but because there's hardly any surviving information that I could get my hands on when I was in Rome we also sort of considered him in a number of different roles because he's a cardinal for a very long time so that means you know he becomes like a patron which for me was the most fascinating aspect to look at because when you think of him you don't really think of him as connected to sort of art definitely not to books um he's more I guess thought of as a diplomat but actually looking at sort of the people that he had staffed his chancery, they actually end up being quite a cosmopolitan, dynamic, literary group. So that was a really interesting part of the research. We also looked at him as a papal legate, so he gets sent back to Spain for a year, which he loves. Um, They don't necessarily love him when he gets back to Spain, but he has a great (laughs) time travelling around. He he goes all over the place. Um, He uh, is sent there to raise awareness of the Crusade against the Ottoman Turks that Pope Sixth is the fourth once um, to also sort of confirm the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella and then really to um, oversee sort of quite trivial matters so the collection of arrears in money that hadn't been collected and it's a good chance for him to really establish the border name back in Spain because ever since the 14, I guess the early 1450s he's actually not been in Spain he's been in Italy he got sent over with his uncle, who was a cardinal at the time, to study at the University of Bologna. Um, and he hasn't been back since. His cousin, Cardinal Mila, who is actually elevated at the same time as him, has gone back to Spain, but Borgia sticks it out and is in Italy for all of this. So it's a really good chance for him to get the Borgia name back in Spain. And that certainly contributes to the latest success and, I guess, power that the Borgias have. 
So what's the most interesting piece of work that's come out of it? I think it was this patronage role. So we don't, like I said, we don't really think of him as a patron. So that's always left me thinking, well, how does a man who is essentially the second most important person actually spend his time if he's not, I guess, doing papal matters? He's not in consistory. So that's when all the cardinals meet the Pope. And it was, it was fascinating to find all these books that are dedicated to him that he actually wrote a book, which unfortunately I've spent five years trying to find. Um, and it's not come to light just yet. It's recorded oh, in a no. very, very dubious account by a Belgian historian who loves Borgia a bit too much. Um, (laughs) to the extent we're in scholarship everyone's dismissed it as you know anything useful is hidden under this amazing coat of whitewash that he's I mean I don't get me wrong love the Borgias will also be very happy to admit their wrongdoings but this guy won't see past that that it's he's very much cast him as a saint where yeah we all know that he's really not spoilers if you haven't seen any of the uh (laughs) depictions of him So yeah, for me that was the that was the most entertaining, the most intriguing. But I didn't expect it to um, actually come as much as three, uh, you know before um, the Borgia apartments are designed. That's the, the biggest thing I guess people would perhaps know about Borgia as a patron. The um, beautiful Pinturicchio paintings. If you've been to the Vatican museums, you go through on en route to the Sistine Chapel. That's probably what people think. Borgia's extent to um, his connection with artists, but actually piecing it back through his earlier career for me was the most interesting. But I love it. Um, so let's talk about the Borgias in the 15th century. Who are they? Where do they come from? What are they doing in Rome? So uh, they're from a, well, their background is as dubious as everything else that we know about them. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> don't really know very much they uh, may have come these particularly the early generation so you can trace the family right back until like the 12th century to perhaps a place called Borgia or Borja I guess if we're we take the Catalan um, which is on the east coast of Spain usually around Valencia the 15th century lot that we're talking about today come from a lovely I've never been the photos look incredible um, a town called Hatuva so that's um, X-A-T-I-V-A with an accent um, it's in the province of Valencia. It's about 40 miles south down the coast, if you can picture it in your mind's eye. Um, it's beautiful. It's a hilltop town. Uh, it goes back to Roman times where it's famous for fabrics. So they're from there. Um, they, you can still visit, actually, the house where he's reportedly born, which I'm going to make someone come with me at some point because I need to go and see this. Is it in um, Italy? No, it's in Spain. Okay, that's good. And they have good food and wine too. Yeah. Alina and I will come with you. (laughs) I'm the same same wavelength as you. I was like, yes, let's go. We're in. Food, drink, great. Food, Um, drink, history, done. Done. Nice weather as well. Yeah, Yeah, we'll we'll bring a camera and make make a video for History Hack and claim it's work. There we go. All sorted. So they're from Hatima. So that's not just Rodrigo Borgia. That's also his uncle Alfonso, who doesn't really get that much press in Borgia history or the history of, I guess, the 15th century Renaissance papacy, mainly because he's only Pope for three years and he doesn't really do very much, but he is significant to the Borgia story. He's kind of the founder of the 15th century dynasty. Um, So he's come over to Italy 
earlier obviously than his his nephew so he um has a really strong background in law so he's really well thought of in sort of the legal uh, circles he's got degrees from the university of Lerida in both canon and civil law um he meets it now this is i love all the myths that they put in with calixus so he meets vincent ferrer so the dominican friar and preacher who's sort of going around preaching um across italy he meets him in 1411 and apparently apparently prophesizes that um this guy's going to be a pope which obviously fast forward a couple of decades later he is so this gets championed as you know it's it's always meant to be for um alfonso borgia so or calixtus but in rome he doesn't really do very much he keeps himself to himself he is um elevated to the college of cardinals in 1444 by pope eugene iv and he gets as his titular church so that's sort of the church that if he's referred to in correspondence that he's labeled as it's where their palace usually is he gets this beautiful one um called santi quattro coronati so the four coronated saints which if you've been to the Colosseum in Rome, it's up on the hill behind it. It's really beautiful. It's okay, yeah. Um, it's not really open very much. We actually had to beg someone to let us in the uh, the only time I've managed to go in. But it is stunning if you go in. The frescoes, everything in there, beautiful. But he's the much... one with the layers underneath. Oh, San Clemente. So that's oh, I love that one. Yeah, so that's not very far away, actually, from oh, Santi Quattro. Um, I should have carried on going up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> next time next, next time. time there we go Road he, trip, keeps, ladies. he keeps himself barricaded no i mean and then you see it and you wonder why anyone would want to leave it so <laughs> very much a, a lone wolf in rome but fast forward to 1455 when nicholas v dies he um he's actually put forward as a compromise candidate so the cardinals can't agree on who should be the next pope and in the midst of this he's very elderly he's very poorly but he's very clever um he actually somehow is elected pope which everyone's a bit surprised at that how come you know um this sort of elderly spanish as well and there's they're only just i guess recovering from things like the western schism that it's not it's not an italian it's not a roman um cardinal has managed to become pope and yeah he reigns for three years he doesn't really do very much apart from he's fascinated with a new crusade, as they all are, that fails. Oh, they all Spoilers. want to be, they want to do a crusade, they don't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only, he's Pope three years after Constantinople's fallen, so. Oh, I guess to be fair to him then. You can kind of understand why, yeah. but he is incredibly inept, mainly because his main concern is to elevate his family. And this is how the Borgia dynasty starts. So he makes, um, I guess three of his nephews, um, two are cardinals, so one is Rodrigo, um, another one is uh, Luis Mila, and then he has one of his other nephews, so Rodrigo's brother, Pedro Luis, um, he actually makes him captain general of the church, so you know, you've got both spheres covered, you've got the cardinal and you've got someone looking after papal armies, very much like the secular hand of Calixtus in Rome. So, that's like Boris Johnson's cabinet. Yeah, if I'm I mean, he's got, he's got all his pals in the right places. Yeah. <laughs> so, turns out this doesn't last for very long. Um, and when he dies, it's, um, it's chaos in Rome. So Rome falls apart any, any, anyway when a pope dies um, during what's called Sede Vacante, so the time of the empty throne. So 
that's when they have the masses for the Pope. When they go and then you contest. get the Dan Brown thing with the smoke and oh well, but I'm afraid <laughs> I'm afraid the smoke, the smoke's a later edition. Oh, I've, I've made I've said two <laughs> words that probably make every papal historian go ah. That's I Dan mean, it, it was great <laughs> to see it in the Showtime version of the Borgias. They had smoke billowing out, and it's just like, come on. <laughs> um so yeah he dies um it kind of scuppers any chance for well you'd think for the borgias because all the romans want to kill the catalans there is so much violence towards them in rome the poor things are hunted down um in the city center and then right out to where all the fortresses that pedro luis had under control all the catalan generals are slain and it's all recorded in vivid detail in I guess, contemporary correspondence. Um, Pedro Luis flees or attempts to flee back to Spain, but is uh, sadly killed. Um, under dubious circumstances, I'm not sure whether he's murdered, but it's probably more likely he dies of um, the plague at Chivita Vecchia on the coast. But Borgia stays, and it's a bold move for someone who at the time is, I think, 27, that everyone hates him. And he's going into his first conclave where he has very little support. Not many of the cardinals like him. And they're all out to um, replace him. The title of papal vice-chancellor, which he's been given the year before by his uncle, it's not hereditary. It doesn't have to last the whole time someone's a cardinal. So it can be given. It's very, yeah, it doesn't really happen very much that it's given to someone new before they die. But everyone's after that title. Do you know, I can see why they did a TV show about it because it is just like one drama after another after another. There's some violence, there's some drama, there's more violence. I mean, drama. why the film Conclave, which um, not many people have heard about. I think it was made in 2006. It's um, it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, Going there it, later on. It was available on YouTube as well at some point. Um, I was, I don't know how I came across this. It's some sort of, you've got to watch it because... Someone's made a film of the conclave of 4258. I thought, right, okay, not sure how it's going to play out. The usual historian scepticism. But but do you know what? I actually, I was talking to one of my friends last night about it again, because I rewatched it, knowing that I wanted to talk about it today. And it's just, it's brilliant. Um, It shows all of what I've just talked about quite vividly. The persecution of the Catalans, Pedro Luis dying and what is made to look like a very nice Greek island, which uh, doubles up to Chivita Vecchia. Um, and it shows Rodrigo, um, possibly the only time, I think actually the only time a young Rodrigo is shown in any TV format and played by a Spanish actor, which given the, I guess, the other two major ones portrayed by an Englishman and a, an American mm. actually makes it <laughs> a bit more authentic. Um I mean, the film's great. It's got Brian Blessed as Pius the Second. Oh, I love him. <laughs> so you know, be prepared for it's, it's. He's had to tear it, tear it back again. But there is some excellent fists banging on tables. And I've met him, and he is just like that. He is exactly as bonkers as you'd want him to be. But you, I think you can tell from it. He had a really good time playing him. That's you the thing. Just he tell. just loves being alone. Yeah, and he gets free reign with um, this wonderful character. He's a bit more, I guess, violent than perhaps we think Pius II should have been. If the, his own, I mean, Pius writes possibly the only record of a conclave from inside the conclave walls. So, I mean, 
he is fantastic for that but it, oh. it is very much a I'm the very best knocks all of his opponents down particularly the French Cardinals they get a really rough time but it's fantastic to see this brought to life um for I guess a tv film audience yeah I highly recommend it's um it's very entertaining my pride and joy is a selfie of Brian and I doing the fish pelt oh fantastic I know I can die (laughs) happy now you have to watch you have to watch it I'm gonna I'm watching it I'm watching it tonight it's also got if anyone's um a fan of things like Da Vinci's Demons or Downton Abbey James Faulkner as um Cardinal Cardinal so he's got um a very tempered French accent in this but it's I think one of the best portrayals of a renaissance cardinal you'll see on screen is is him as the soup bill so hopefully i've sold it to a few more people because it didn't get widely distributed very much <laughs> i film, love downton abbey so i've definitely got to watch sold. it now. there you go yeah uh, and everyone else has gone right bless it oh my god <laughs> as pious the second <laughs> and then as there's just pie. me with downton abbey it's fine don't worry later my mum's <laughs> making me take her to that bloody house next week it's beautiful. Oh, we went for the Christmas markets. So it was oh, did really you? good. Yeah, a couple of years ago with one of the oh, best friends. I'm it's not really telling good. her that exists, otherwise I'll <laughs> back in oh, the it's, car again. It's sold out with minutes, but if you can get a ticket for it, highly recommend. Oh, I'll just tell her I couldn't. So moving on, moving on, ladies, yeah. uh, away from a bit of gossiping, let's go back to a bit of history. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of the key family members? Sure. So what I did was, um, there's obviously a lot of people that, in the family or affiliated with them is I broke it down to um let me just see I think about five or six which I can go through very quickly oh brilliant it. yeah do like your top five top of the My pop top style. five so obviously we've done Calixtus and um a little bit of Borgia I'll flesh out Borgia or Rodrigo I keep calling him Borgia because I'm used to writing it in my thesis um so obviously my favorite is Rodrigo his dates are 1431 to 1503 he, like we said, went to study at Bologna, then um, has a very accelerated career through the church, thanks to his uncle. So he's made a cardinal um, in 1456, vice-chancellor, 1457, and is very much a mainstay in Rome. He has a beautiful palazzo um, called the Cancelleria, or the Chancery, that um, a later description of it is just, it's covered in gold, it's got all these beautiful the couches, books, everything you basically want for a lavish lifestyle in Rome, he's got it. Um, he pretty much holds every position in the church possible. Um, so he is then towards the end of his career as a cardinal in 1483, um, is made Dean of the College of Cardinals. So that is what is thought of as the most senior cardinal. It's usually the most elderly, um, who processes first in all the processions. So, you know, he's the first person to be seen, um, votes in conclave first, things like that. So it's, what is considered, I guess, a natural stepping stone from um, Dean to Pope, but actually not many people do it. They tend to die before they can be elected Pope. And then in 1492, in August, so on the 11th, he is elected Pope Alexander VI. Everyone knows about the papacy. Um, He gets involved with the French a couple of times. He has a run-in with Savonarola in Florence. His family, which is I guess the other thing he's known for so I picked three of the most notable children to have a look at um Pedro Luis so they like repetitive names is Borgia's first son uh, by an unknown woman so his dates are 1462 to 1488 he's very much Borgia's um 
hopes and dreams in Spain. He fights in the Battle of Ronda with the Spanish armies, impresses him so much that he's actually made Duke of Gandia. So he's given a dukedom for literally just turning up to battle. There's no real accounts he actually did anything. Um, he had then married off, attempted to marry off to uh, a lady called Maria Enriquez de Luna, who is the first cousin of Ferdinand and Isabella, but he dies unexpectedly before that can happen. Um, and then I guess we get on to, I snuck an extra one in, the three, I guess, famous children. So that's Cesare, his dates are 1475 to 1507. He's, I guess, best known for uh, being the inspiration behind Machiavelli's Prince. Um, he's also one of the only people, if not the only person still, that has resigned from the College of Cardinals. He literally was a cardinal for a year and then decided that that was not what he wanted to be. So leaves the College of Cardinals, um, goes to France, has a fated career with, um, I think it's Louis XII at that point, and then falls out of favour when his father dies in Rome. He can't control the next two conclaves of 1503, so there's two in very quick succession because Pius III dies, and I think, 21 days after being um, elected Pope, and obviously Julius II does not like him goes to Spain, or goes, sorry, gets um, done over in Naples, gets shipped off to Spain, and then escapes a couple of times from captivity, gets deserted by his armies, and then is killed and is unceremoniously dumped in the middle of the field with a tile covering his modesty, apparently, is the, uh, is the phrase that's used with him. Um, we've then got his younger brother, Juan, possibly best known for actually being murdered, in Rome in a famous murder in 1497. It's still not being confirmed who killed him. His brother Cesare was under suspicion as were a couple of cardinals, uh, but it plunges Alexander VI into despair. He doesn't meet with any cardinals, doesn't want to do anything, blames himself for it, but it triggers this attempt to reform the church bizarrely, which fails spectacularly because none of the cardinals want to give up their rights and privileges. Um, and then we've got his daughter Lucrezia, so her date's 1480-1519. She's used Blasa as a diplomatic marriage tool, so she's married three times. First to Giovanni Sforza of Pesaro, so a minor branch of the Sforza family of Milan. Mm -hmm. Then she's married to Naples when, uh, when Milan fails to um, actually provide any sort of help to, to Rome and they actually think Sforza is impotent, so he's bumped out of the picture. He's not murdered like it's shown in the TV series, but their um, marriage is annulled. She's then married to Alfonso d'Aragona, so that's going the other end of Italy to Naples. Um, he's killed in mysterious circumstances, which um, Cesare's kind of implicated in, but again, like so much for the Borgias, we don't really know. And then her final marriage is to Alfonso d'Este Ferrara, so moving back up the Italian peninsula to the... Um, I guess the king that now state of Ferrara. Um, she dies in 1519. She's buried in a really beautiful convent. I dragged my family when we were in Ferrara a couple of years ago. To uh, <laughs> they loved it. My brother. I bet they dread up. going to Italy with you. Oh no, they loved it. They, <laughs> they crashed my research trip when I went to Florence and Venice as an undergrad. They came. Um, so we we traipsed over to um, the convent of Corpus Domini, which is beautiful. It's a nightmare to try and get their opening times because they open when they feel like it but they um 
they're very kind less group of us in and these tombs are all on the floor and it yeah it was quite it was a really beautiful day sun was coming in and um yeah it was lovely to see her tomb because Chesare's I've never seen since in Spain Juan not really sure where he's buried and actually the last time I was in Rome on a research trip I managed to see Borges tomb because it was moved from St Peter's to um the church for um sort of Spanish community in Rome just around the corner of Campo de Fiori and it's it's lovely. It's him and his uncle, Calixtus. I love Campo de Fiori. But it's got a lovely time with the Borgias, but with um, Borgias' mistress, Vanotta Catane, she, I adore her. She has this amazing career where she goes from, I guess, mistress to Rodrigo. So she is the mother of Cesare, Juan, Lucrezia, and a couple of other children. But she manages to have a career in her own right as this wonderful... I guess what we'd now call it is like a hotel proprietor. So she owns a number of taverns in the Campo, so right in the heart of Rome. And she's a really established businesswoman in her own right, which considering at the time women and property not overly um, sort of mixed, it's, it's great. And then she's given what is described as kind of like on par with the funeral for a cardinal. When she dies, Leo, Pope Leo X, um, so one of the Medici popes, recognised her as, you know, the mistress of Alexander, the mother of, uh, he says the Duchess of Ferrara, which is Lucrezia. And she has this wonderful funeral that loads of people come to. So, I mean, she's she's outlived, I think she managed to pretty much outlive all her children, which I find quite sad. And she out, she outlives the man that, you know, technically left her for a younger woman, which was um, Julia Farnese, which is shown, obviously, in both the TV series. But yeah, all, all you see of her now is this um, marble, it's cracked, it's outside San Marco, so in Piazza Venezia, that's all that's left of her, and a couple of portraits that they think are of her, but they're, we're not sure still. But they're, they're the main ones of the 15th century, there's a later one that's a saint, um, and there's still a lot of work to be done on the earlier family, because they've got links with... Um, the knights of going on um, crusades against Moors around Spain. So they are a really interesting, rich family that sort of span most of Western Christendom at the time. So it's insane. Of, Their rise to power is just savage as well, isn't it? Oh, it's astronomical. I mean, they, they can't like the Italian families of Medici, the Sforza, the Deste, Gonzaga. They've got no base or pre-established base in Italy. Theirs is of their own making, which yeah. It, they burn bright, but they burn, they burn for very long. But I think it should really be applauded that a family can come in to a country which is incredibly hostile to um, particularly successful um, foreign families, insert themselves into society in Rome, and then obviously later went through the marriages. And they really do take Rome on. And yeah, obviously there's, there's very harsh critics of Rodrigo, particularly at the time, Calixtus escapes most of the criticism. But a quite a lot of these contemporaries go, okay, well, you know, he's um, definitely guilty of sexual misconduct on a number of levels, perhaps murder, intrigue. But actually, particularly when he's vice chancellor, his administrative capacity is phenomenal. He's a wonderful diplomat, which is what the papacy in Italy needed at the time. Definitely like recovering from um, sort of the Western schism. All the city states are in uproar at least at one point during his career. So. Yeah, it's a very mixed view. And then obviously the um, 
black legend develops during Borges pontificate and particularly when he, he dies in 1503. So we have to talk about depictions in media. Can you mm-hmm. give us an overview? Uh, so I guess the three main ones are um, Conclave, which we've talked about, which is produced in 2006. That is the only depiction, to the best of my knowledge, that shows him as a young cardinal. It follows the events of the Conclave of 1458, shows Borgia entering the first, his first Conclave um, since his uncle's death, and shows how the other cardinals, who are much more superior, much more worldly, really do try and corrupt him. And it gives you a hint of, I guess, the man that he'll become, which is very centred, very, you know, knows, is very aware, even at a young age, of all the flattery, deception that's going on in the college of cardinals, um, the relentlessness of people to basically buy the papacy. He's, there's a number of wonderful scenes with all the cardinals, the um, particular favourite, which it's it's based off Pius II's commentaries, and it's, it's in this, is... They all meet in the privies um, to discuss. Like you do. <laughs> how, yeah, it's a wonderful scene. And then it's, you know, how to discuss um, Cardinal de Stoutville, who's the um, main French cardinal at the time. He has got, he's up to his elbows in riches, benefices. He's got the King of France, he says, in his back pocket, which remains to be seen. So they're all meeting to discuss how they're going to elect him. And Cardinal Piccolomini, later by a second, waltzes in and oversees it and then starts his own campaign and Borges caught in the middle so it really is his first chance to be diplomatic and I think it has a profound impact on how he treats later conclaves and his fellow cardinals he's very shrewd very prudent um, and he survives everyone thinks going into it I mean one of the one of the earliest scenes is him hiding or disguised as almost like a beggar outside Rome to which is no record of sadly but um hiding outside St Peter's waiting for the cardinals to come in because he fears for his life so much but it's it's a wonderful insight into a, a I think a conclave definitely that nobody perhaps has that much of an understanding or knowledge of um people may know Pius II for the beautiful frescoes in Siena his commentaries which are a wonderful help for understanding of 15th century papacy and some of his more dubious texts I mean there's there's one there's some that are quite salacious which he professes to be a humanist so to have this as well is fantastic um it's a wonderful film it was supposed to be a full length or there were plans to show um Borges entire life which again when I was talking to my friend last night we were saying oh you know this would be desperately needed but couldn't get an audience um None of the film festivals took this film on, so it was, um, I guess, just um, set to Amazon Prime, which is such a shame because it, it's a lovely way into um, the Staff of Borgia story. I'll wait um, to watch it now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a really good way into, I guess, as well, 15th century politics, diplomacy, the corruption of the church, because you know, we're not going to skirt around that issue no. at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very much dated, um, watching it, I guess, what are we, nearly, yeah, over a decade and a bit on, but it's um, it deserves more press than it gets. Um, for me, obviously, looking at the Borgias, it's a really handy visual source to, um, to show to audiences, to really give them an understanding of how much of a success Borgia was. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I have to ask because, well, I have to hand over to Alina because her mum is a massive fan of one of the series and has given uh, us some of her favourite moments. Fantastic. Yeah, sorry, I had to I had to uh, double check where this was on my phone um, before. So I kind of uh, this is my in my language. My mum was a little bit more eloquent than this, so um, this is just going to be basically me saying it. So the first one is the Pope shagging his lover who gave him two sons and a daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second's sons given privileges and one became bishop or something. Yep. Uh, <laughs> sorry, this is this just is me. On, just hang on the money. That's great so far. Uh, my mum, like I said, mum was far more eloquent than this. This is me. Uh, Your mum's going to be like, "You made me sound so common." She isn't common. That's the funny thing. Um, the other, uh, ha- the other one had people threatening his dad. Um, wait, hold on. Wait, I need to read <laughs> what I've just written here. Um, so the other one had. Oh yeah. So the other brother or son. Um, had people who were threatening his dad killed off with his own assassin. That's true. Definitely. Yep. Um, I think I'm going to leave it there because <laughs> this is, I think we should start off with this because this is like, this is a bit like EastEnders, but like the old and EastEnders, like, yeah, oh my God, he stole this and he stabbed me and he, you know, so um, yeah, let's, uh, let's do those myths, I think, first. So they came up simultaneously, these two. So there's two, the other two, I guess, better known depictions of Ben Conclave are the two TV series, The Borgias, which was Showtime's one. So if you've seen The Tudors, pretty much a rerun of that, but just transposed over to Italy. So it ran from 2011 to 2013, where it was um, quite unceremoniously cancelled because apparently the budget was too high and the viewing figures were too low which given the backlash now I'm a bit surprised at um it kind of banked on for me the big names so Jeremy Irons as Pope Alexander VI which it shouldn't work <laughs> but kind of does in a way um I was thinking about which one I went through both casts which one I thought did better on each character his voice lent itself to what I imagine Borgia could have been like the tone obviously it's an Englishman playing a Catalan but I quite enjoyed his portrayal of Borgia it's you know unscrupulous very clever 
witty, which I, I enjoyed the amount of humour sometimes there was in this. Um, and I think he got the dynamics between the two, his two sons, Cesare and Juan, that are in the, the series with him. I think he got that pretty much perfect. Um, physically, not exactly what Borges apparently looks like. So if anyone's seen the portraits of him, it's usually quite a large man, um, quite jowly. He is described as um, sort of dark skinned, olive complexion, uh, with sort of black penetrating eyes, which you look at Jeremy Irons, he, he's got, I think, you know, the eyes, but um, he's not a large man. Um, so you've got to imagine physically he looks a lot different. Um, I thought, I mean, it was interesting looking at how he had approached playing Borgia, that he was attracted, he wasn't um, overly attracted to the role to begin with, because he didn't know how he was going to play it. But I think then from what he said it was really interesting to see that he um had been kind of suckered in by the story and enjoyed it and sort of the background interviews with him had been really interesting but um I think where it fell for me where it fell apart with it and perhaps this is me being unfair was there were so many errors from the word go with it um there's cardinals that are made up which yeah, it's, it's an interesting story in its own right without having to manipulate names where they don't add anything to the narrative, if that makes sense. So the cardinals that are made up don't really do anything, but they were just a glaring point with it. Um, it opens with the death of Innocent VIII with a beard, which um, he didn't have. Um, and there's <laughs> <Sorry>. not much. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it's the what it was the tone of your voice there, you know, <laughs> with a beard. And then I knew that you were just about to say there, you didn't have a beard. Didn't have, didn't have a beard. <laughs> um, I, I think it threw audiences into the story, presupposing that they knew quite a lot, um, particularly about perhaps politics, the diplomatic situation in Italy, Borgia's rivalry, which I love with um, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, which that was implied that people would already know that was a thing. It was going to be a massive problem for both of them in the conclave, um, which I was surprised at. I, I thought they'd gently introduce it, which is what I think Canal Plus is one, which is the other TV series produced in the same year. Um, just called Borgia, but had the tagline, which I love, Faith and Fear. So this wonderful juxtaposition of of ideas. That also ran for three series, but it managed to complete the Borgia narrative. Um, that, for me, worked better on a number of levels. It's, um, well, one, it completed the story. Um, the other one, sadly, didn't get close to providing a completion to it. They were going to I didn't realise until a couple of days ago when I looked at this, they were going to release the um, the last bit to tie up the story to the Showtime one as an ebook called The Border Apocalypse. Um, and Neil Jordan, who's behind both the Borgers on Showtime and who was also on the Tudors, said, he, I wanted a biblical ending for the Pope to burn in hell, which, wonderful. Um, there are notions with a diet with the diabolic that linked with Alexander, that was possibly the most interesting uh, conference paper or article that I've, I've, re I've been lucky enough to research and then sort of publish this idea. But 
you know, it left people with this very, I just, I guess, disjointed narrative that Cesare and Lucrezia had committed incest on screen. And then it was just left. You hadn't got the death of Borgia. You hadn't got any of Cesare's story being completed. And yeah, this is the one, Cesare in the Showtime one I thought was done better than the other series. Although he had less screen time, I was much more convinced by the portrayal um, Francois Arnaud gave rather than the one, I think he's Mark Ryder in the other series. Um, I think the problem was the supposition kind of that you can get away with when you're doing the Tudors, but not when you're... I think that had set the the benchmark, hadn't it? The Tudors had opened up this, you know, Mm. the gateway to all these historical period pieces. I was trying to think about how many came off the back of it. But um, then so many of them, but you can't. People have that base knowledge in the back of their head of the Tudors. Yeah, to <laughs> weirdos everywhere they go, um, but not for the Borgers, which probably no. made it a bit why it wasn't as successful. Which is why I think the um, Canal Plus one is such a shame. It's not on Netflix because that was, I mean, it was filmed in a way that each episode was this beautifully created film in its own right rather than an episode it was so wonderfully filmed it was you know paraphrased almost with what what the year was for a start that was really helpful um because you know it covers 1492 to 1507 it covered it gave you a really ins- clear insight I think into the diplomatic thing which then explains why people are doing this who's married to who why you know Lucrezia is suddenly not married to that person anymore and is married to somebody else um who's in Rome so I yeah I really do applaud it for that my only worry is because of its limited availability people just bank off the Showtime Jeremy Irons one as being you know the distinct visual narrative of the family um and yeah I mean it's got it's got a number of faults I don't fault it I I, because when I introduce what I do to people um I usually get oh it's Jeremy Irons or it's Assassin's Creed yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know how wonderful to study a period of history where there's been a you know a whole very popular series of video games which again i'm not gonna you... lie i love campo di fiore because of the statue of bruno yeah in the middle. just just sit in there um yeah it's it's lovely that you've got a whole new generation of people that there's now a series of books as well if they did want to follow it up but yeah, I think it just, it's with anything. I was thinking about this the other day um, with historical accuracy and in TV series, films, you know, any form of media, whose responsibility is it? Or do we have a responsibility to portray it as completely accurate? Does that take away some of the fun then? Um, or should audiences be aware? And I think that, I think the vast majority are that, you know, what's presented isn't necessarily word for word the truth um i did see a fantastic comment about on it was on the tudors it was just after or just leading up to it did a series break when Anne Bloom was beheaded and someone said oh don't spoil it i don't know what happens next i thought oh dear god come on that's what 500 years ago if you've not read it if you don't even know the divorce beheaded died thing yeah um, <laughs> there is no hope for you we're in trouble but it, yeah, i mean what I always say is it's wonderful that there are things like this now and it it engages people that perhaps never thought about this period of history um and it means you know we can have this wonderful discussion about 
the rise and the importance and how much people love a period piece but also when errors start creeping in it does worry me slightly these these sort of um series but i mean they're entertainment at the end of the day um i was entertained by both i mean it's got everything it's got everything you need for a very good story hasn't it it has yeah and how important are the borgias in the context of the renaissance um so obviously they're the only non-italian family so in that regards very important because they add an extra dimension to story um they're not the only obviously important family at the time so they're on par with the Medici in Florence so there's obviously a Netflix three-part series on them that's currently available which was great to trace their history back actually because we only really think perhaps of the Patsy conspiracy um or just of Lorenzo himself um you've then got the Sforza in Milan um who actually do feature quite a bit in if anyone's seen Medici Masters of Florence they're in that narrative quite a lot which their history is really interesting because they kind of seize power of the city as well so um they haven't had a tv series yet I I don't know if you'd ever see them depicted but they they I think they should be just for the bit where Katarina goes and lifts her skirts up Oh, and stands on the battlement. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's, she's wonderful. And this she's has married. had traction on History Hack. <laughs> oh, she, I mean, she, the biography, The Tigress of Four Lee, is just, if anyone wants a book recommendation on her, she, that book is brilliant. Um, I mean, she's married to one of the most detestable men I think there is, which is Girolamo Riario. I mean, he's awful. And um, she's a really strong, competent woman as well, which he hates. Um, so she takes their story um, to a place like Forley, Imola. She lives, I think, I can't remember her exact dates, but she has quite a long life. Um, she's seen an cre- incredible lot of violence as well and manages to sort of tell the tale and survive, which should be applauded. Um, but yeah, she's from, she's illegitimate from Milan. Um, and then you've got Venice, obviously ruled by a doge. They're more concerned with um, maintaining trade with the Ottoman Turks than they are actually contributing to a crusade. They come up with so many different excuses. The boats never arrive as they promise. Um, they they very much try and keep themselves up there. They're not supportive of any of their bishops who want to be cardinals. There's a wonderful intrigue about some of the Venetian cardinals selling state secrets of the Venetians for... Um, bigger abbeys which I was delighted to find out about it was a very much a whodunit in the 1460s which was good fun um and then you've got places like Mantua with the Gonzaga family um if anyone's been to Mantua the wedding chamber in there is really famous for a depiction of a renaissance family although it's kind of dubious how accurate it is but as a piece of art that's stunning but they I mean they all interconnect you've got um the Deste and Ferrara You've got the terrible Malatesta of Rimini, who are known as just condottieri. They love to wage war and torture people in the most terrible fashion. Um, and I mean, these all interconnect. They pretty much all have cardinals that have to come to Rome. They have some wonderful personalities working for them. So Da Vinci, people like Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Botticelli, they all come from some of these wonderful places. I mean, the obvious one, I'm sorry, I haven't said is um, Urbino. And I mean, that really does send a lot of very talented people 
out and about. But yeah, the Borgia are the only non-Italians. So there they are sort of um, coming over from Spain and they have to compete with these families who have, some of them have been established for many, many um, sort of decades, centuries. And they all have to, I guess at times, get on to get along, which is easier said than done. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this very interesting time in history. Obviously, the really awesome TV show and uh, film that both Alex and I are going to go away and watch. Wonderful. My night sorted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Join us tomorrow when Ben Hodges will be with us to talk all about his speciality, which is intelligence in the interwar period in Britain. So don't miss that. It's a great story of how military intelligence evolved in the period between the two wars. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.